Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Read Smart. My name is Toby Mundy and I'm the director of the prize, taking over hosting duties today from our usual host, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. The Read Smart podcast talks to some of the world's leading writers and publishers to explore the world of non-fiction publishing, as well as providing a behind-the-scenes insight into this year's prize journey. To remind you, the winner of the 2021 Bailey Gifford Prize will be announced on the 16th of November, where they'll be presented with a cheque for £50,000. Over the last 22 years, the Bailey Gifford Prize has rewarded the very best in non-fiction writing, spanning fields as diverse as history, current affairs, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography and the arts. In the run-up to the winner announcement next month, I'm in conversation with our six shortlisted authors, asking about their lives and enthusiasms and, of course, the reasons why they wrote their shortlisted books. Today, I'm joined by uh, the Professor of Political Theory at the London School of Economics, uh, Leia Uppi, who's the author of Free, Coming of Age at the End of History. Leia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for hosting me. And many congratulations on being shortlisted for the prize this year. Thank you very much. Today, I think, is actually the actual official publication date of the book, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> well, that's exciting. I'm delighted that we can talk to you on Publication Day. Uh, happy Publication Day. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited. So your, your book is a highly unusual coming-of-age story with a sort of clear before and after line in the book. Um, your early childhood, of course, is in Albania, which I think was then the last Stalinist outpost of the 20th century. Can you tell us what kind of place Albania was in the 1980s? It was a very isolated society. It was a socialist state, or it claimed to be a socialist state, which meant that the working class held power. It was a monoparty state. It was governed by the Labour, the Albanian Labour Party, which was the heir to the Albanian Communist Party. And by the time in which I was growing up, it was extremely isolated because it had fallen out not only from all the um, capitalist states, which were its long-standing enemies, but also from more or less every other socialist state that there was in the world, especially if there were big states. So it had fallen out with Yugoslavia in the 40s. Uh, it had fallen out with the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union de-Stalinized following the uh, Khrushchev attempts to purge from the cult of Stalin. And it had fallen out by, with China, who was the third ally after the Soviet Union. So when I was growing up, it was very politically very isolated, internally very homogeneous, and uh, I was a child growing up in communist Albania, and so I was convinced that we were isolated because we were on the right side of history, and every other socialist state who had initially started by sharing our ideals had more or less deviated because they couldn't uh, hold on and they had lost their moral integrity somehow. I, I think some of these granular differences will be a bit lost on us with uh, so many decades on from, from the 1980s. What, what specifically were the attributes of a Stalinist society compared to you know, um, uh, the other communist societies around the world? Uh, the main one, I would say, was the suppression of dissent. And so the degree to which there was censorship and control over individual opinion, over freedom, personal freedom, uh, the degree to which the party policed order and policed the upholding of these communist ideals that it claimed to share, 
and the uh, the degree to which the population also claimed to be in the service of these ideals, even though underground there were obviously a lot of uh, dissent and there was dissatisfaction. It was a very poor state when I was growing up. The queues were very long. Um, people were clearly struggling, but this on the surface everything was okay, and the state there was a very big divide between the state propaganda and rhetoric and discourse around this supporting these communist ideals on the one hand and the life of the ground on the ground of people on the other so it was a, a a deeply oppressive state but it was also highly ordered wasn't it and structured yes it was certainly very uh, ordered in terms of public order there was no uh, you know it wasn't dangerous you couldn't walk on the streets it was completely fine you could be in the middle of the night as a child and you know you your parents wouldn't worry about you there was lots of uh, policing of everything and so of every aspect of life, which meant that, uh, yes, in terms of pure stability and, and sort of pure peace from fear of being assaulted on the streets or whatever, there was none of that. Huh. And you lived in a coastal town on the Adriatic, I think, didn't you? What, what did your parents do? I lived on the, on, the, on the coastal town of Duros, yes, which is the main uh, port in Albania and uh, a, an interesting city with a very long history. It was a Hellenic colony for a while, then it was a Venetian town, um, and uh, then before that it had been a Roman town. So it, it was an, a city with a lot of, with a very interesting history. It's in fact, it's one, it's a city that is mentioned in Aristotle's uh, politics as one of the most successful oligarchies of the Hellenic world. Um, my parents were, my mother was a teacher, she was a maths teacher, and my father was an engineer, a forestal engineer, I guess you would call it today, an environmental engineer. They had uh, both gone to university. They both afterwards, after 1990, when they revealed a little bit about their lives to me, said that they had only managed to go to university because at the time in which they were um, ready to go to university, Albania was still in an alliance with the Soviet Union. And things were uh, on the cusp of sort of breaking with Stalin, but not quite, which meant that communism in Albania was more relaxed than it became afterwards. And so they always said that the only reason they managed to go to university was that they happened to be uh, 20, 18, 20 in those years when, when things were a little bit more relaxed. Otherwise, afterwards, my mother's siblings, for example, didn't manage to, to study. Um, and neither of them had studied what they wanted. They said they both had different interests, but they just had to do what they were told to do. <sighs> Oh no, and 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 you talking of study, you you yourself were subject to a sort of intense moral education as well as an education in the usual subjects, weren't you? What yeah. did that What did that comprise? Yeah, I mean, uh, not just me. Everyone we had moral education was the class in school, one of the usual classes in school, and it basically meant that you were taught about the ideals of socialism, about what the difference between socialism and communism were. Uh, about the foundations of Marxism, sort of very basic, about the difference between a socialist society and a capitalist society, about the different states in the world that had capitalist societies and all the problems that were going on there, the oppression that uh, was in those societies and how children lived, for example, in capitalist states and how there were these big divides between the rich and the poor and unequal opportunities. And then you were told a little bit also about the history of socialism, so the different other countries and how they had engaged with the socialist project and how Albania differed from them and why it was superior, basically. Goodness. Um, and your book is not just a rather a brilliant and profound meditation on freedom and the key qualities of politics. It's also a very fine literary work. And one of the p powerful literary qualities of the book is your ability to recreate your childhood self. Um, how difficult was that? I mean, it's not the kind of writing that 
you expect from a professor of political theory? Um, it was very difficult at the beginning because it's hard, you know, when you're trained and, and, and think in a certain way and think in abstract categories and concepts. It's very, the abstract categories always come first. So uh, it, it was hard at the beginning. But then once I made the decision to tell the story in a different way, uh, it was actually easy because all I had to do was stand back. And every time the philosopher in me tried to prevail and try to organize concepts or to impose views on characters, I had to tell myself, no, 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 this is a different kind of project. Uh, you've decided to do it differently for a reason. It was very important to me because because it is a book on freedom and because it's a book that's about characters and how freedom is lived in the daily life of, of people and about how you know this yearning for freedom is at the heart of all the choices and the dilemmas that they face in their lives. It was very important to me to tell it not as a political theorist, to tell their story not as someone, not as an academic who has a claim to know better and understands all these concepts and, and, and is able to explain them, but rather to have all the characters lead themselves in this sort of more polyphonic way where each of them has a different conception of freedom and each of them has a different story to tell about what they believe freedom is and why it fails and how, how they see that failure in their lives without the author trying to organize them and to sort of impose their views on each of them. And so I wanted all of them to be free as well to explore and to tell their story to the reader and then let the reader in the end engage with them in this sort of conversation and, and draw their own lessons and continue in a way the dialogue with the book even after the book was finished. It's, it's incredibly effective, I must say. Um, so one of the things that you capture is these, you know, this sort of the, the, your childhood worries, the worries of yourself when you were, what, I suppose, under 10. And you capture those worries and uncertainties wonderfully. For example, you know, your parents don't have a picture of Uncle Enver on display, do they, Enver Hoxha? Um, and you worry about your surname as well, don't you? Why, why is that? Yes, there were all these things growing up that I knew made me somewhat stand out from other children in Albania. So the fact that, for example, in every um, other family that we knew, every family would have this photo of Enver Hoxha displayed on their bookshelves and we didn't have it. And <clears throat> at one point, I remember... I became extremely concerned by this, especially after uh, the death of Enver Hoxha, where the sense of grief and loss in the whole country was so pervasive. And I somehow, I remembered, every child remembers very clearly in Albania the day in which Enver Hoxha died. They all have their stories. Mine is of one kind, but everyone will tell you a different story about how they lived it. No matter how young they were, they were clearly very much affected by this. But I remember, especially then, when, you know, on the day of the death, I remember that I was completely devastated because I'd been told in school that this was devastating uh, news and that, you know, we would struggle to recover and we would eventually recover because there was always this faith in the future. But I noticed that my parents didn't seem to be as shocked as I was. And that was the first time I was about five and a half then, where I remember very clearly beginning to think, well, how come they, they, there's something in them? They don't seem to share this enthusiasm. There's something about them that that's very strange. My surname was another one that made me stand out because I had the same surname as a former Albanian prime minister who was very important in the history of Albania because he had been pivotal to uh, giving the sovereignty, passing on sovereignty from King Zog, who was in power when the fascists invaded, to when the fascists uh, invaded and were sort of de facto colonizers of Albania. So he was a sort of squizzling Vichy figure in Albanian history, and he was always mentioned in the history books. And he had the same name and surname as my father. And every time this man came up in history classes, I had to explain, I'm not related to him. I was, uh, you know, I don't know anything about him. It just happens. It's an unfortunate coincidence that my father has the same name and surname and so on. And so this was something that I had to always explain whenever we studied history. 
whenever we studied history, the other thing was that uh, the Second World War was very important. Everyone had resistance um, family members, for example, people who had fought in the war and, and been on the partisan side and fought against the fascists and the Nazis. And we didn't have a single family member that we could associate to this resistance effort. And so that was another source of great um, difficulty for me because every time I was asked, well, do you have an uncle or do you have a grandfather or do you have someone? I kept asking my parents, well, do we have anyone who fought in the war? And they seemed always uncomfortable by this question. And so I had noticed throughout my childhood all these things, which eventually in 1990, I discovered there was a reason for all of these things. And there was a reason behind the surname and the name and surname of a prime minister being the same. And, uh, but nothing during my childhood. I only knew that I was strange. The other thing was my grandmother always spoke French to me. It was the language I was brought up Absolutely. with. Absolutely. Well, I want to come to both your grandmother and 1990 in just a moment, if I may. But the, the, the other thing about this world is that um, lots of strange objects or objects that seem strange to us now were prized, weren't they? Coca-Cola cans and certain kinds of sweet wrappers. What, were you surprised to recover those memories? What, what, were the, what, was, what was the significance of those objects? Yeah, they were... Uh, so again, it's one of these things that they're so part of your childhood that you, it's only, you don't even realise that it's strange to outsiders or that it may sound strange to outsiders when you tell the story. Uh, we were... Yeah, we, we grew up with this craving for objects in the West that we didn't have. So Coca-Cola and Fanta and all these things we didn't have. And of course, we didn't even know at that point what they were because we'd never seen them. Nobody had ever seen them. They weren't sold in the shops. And often films which showed things from the West that stood out were either censored at pivotal parts or what. So you just didn't have access to these objects. But some, somehow they made their way in. And often they made their way in, in the form of empty, empty cans. And so people didn't even know what, you know what the Coca-Cola can was about, what it was supposed to hold. But if you managed to hold on to it, sometimes you would buy it secondhand in sort of secondhand uh, informal trade, then people would display it in their bookshelf just right next to the photo of Anwar Hoxha. And so often families, some, some families had these cans displayed on the bookshelves and they were, you know, they'd either put a flower in them or they'd put it on top of a tablecloth to make, to look, to make it look nice. And, and so, yes, there were a lot of things from the West, symbols like, you know, the big pans, pens or the bubble gums, which, again, we didn't have the bubble gums, but we had the wrappers, uh, which we usually collected. And so there were, this was, I think, across Eastern Europe, actually, there's children who still have their bubble wrap, wrapper collections. Um, or, you know, I don't know, swimming costumes, anything. There were clearly objects that would make, that would make foreigners stand out, which is often also why when someone came to Albania as a tourist, and tourists were very few and far between, but and often, you know, very isolated from the locals and very controlled, you would immediately notice that they weren't Albanian because they had different clothes, they looked different, they smelled different, they had sun cream, we didn't have sun cream. And so this was something that really made them stand out. Hmm. And you talked earlier about your parents actually having the opportunity to go to university because of a sort of accident of history. But there was lots of talk about going to university in inverted commas when you were growing up, weren't there? Wasn't there? And that, that wasn't quite what it seemed to be, uh, something you discovered later. Tell us a little about that. Yes. So when I was growing up, my family always talked about universities. It was always said that my grandfather, for example, had spent a long time at university. He had done a first degree. He studied in Paris law at the Sorbonne. And then it was said that after the first degree, which was the Paris one, there had been another degree somewhere in Albania, which lasted a lot longer and made him do a lot of researches and translations and so on. And then people talked about family members who either, you know, went to university and then dropped out or went to study uh, I don't know, literature or politics or economics, 
or they said they stayed on to teach afterwards. So this was there was a whole range of ways in which people talked about education and universities. And when I was growing up, it was, again, one of these things that was seen very strange because I thought my family is taking an extraordinary interest in higher education, way more than any other family I know. Why are they always talking about? So I, I grew up very early knowing what, thinking that I knew what your university was, a place where you go to do research and you study different degrees and then you end up doing certain things. You either don't manage or you, you come out of it in, in sort of the same way in which I, you went in, or there were all these different registers of discussion around universities, which I then discovered in 1990 that this was the code language in my family for talking about prisons. And so if they said, for example, someone had studied economics, it meant that that member of the family came from a property-owning family that had been expropriated. And so economics was code for having a sentence for holding wealth and hiding gold, for example, and not giving the gold to the party when it was confiscated. Or if someone said a family member had dropped out, what it meant was that they had committed suicide. And if they said uh, a family member had stayed on, it meant that they had turned from uh, someone who was suffering a sentence in prison to being a spy, because staying on meant that you would convert and become complicit with, with the regime. And so it turned out that my grandfather's long stint at university, they had said to me, you know, he'd spent a long time doing research and he'd done this and he'd done that, meant that he had spent 15 years in prison. And that was the reason why my father had grown up without his father and with only his mother, which was something that I, I never understood why, you know, he had been brought up with a single mother. Goodness. And was that a private language within your family? Or was, that universe, was that a sort of universal code? No, it was a private language within my family. I think different families had different codes, languages. So this is what they had found and this is what they were, were talking about. But often, for example, people spoke of uncle and uh, I think they meant at the time, this was more, more universal, they meant Enver Hoxha. And so uncle was some sort of relative in the family that everybody spoke about, but the name, name was never mentioned. It was just uncle. Yeah. Yeah. And you weren't totally isolated, were you? I think you had. You, there were periods where you could get access to news from Italy, for example, couldn't you, and, and Macedonia? Yeah, we were never uh, completely isolated in the sense that we always had access to these news sources from uh, informal ways of picking up the channels with different antennas that people made. So they had these little antennas and they were fiddling with the antenna in the summer to get a direct signal from the Adriatic Sea from Italy or there was a different antenna up on the Mount Daiti, which is a mountain near Tirana, from which they could also pick the Italian signal, or we had access to Macedonian television. It was always hit and miss. And so you never had it you know, all day long, or sometimes when the news came, for example, the signal up in the mountains would disappear because it was somehow controlled. So there was a sense in which the party was aware that people were having access to these alternative sources of information from the West or from Yugoslavia, in the other case, and they tolerated it so long as it wasn't that the news weren't political or that they didn't completely disrupt the public order. And so everyone had access to these things. We sometimes watch soap operas. You know, I remember my mother was in love with Dynasty and completely obsessed with the, um, uh, you know, with she, she said that she didn't actually even follow the story because it was in Macedonian. So she didn't even, you know, didn't understand what it was about. She didn't really follow the plot, but she liked to see the furniture and to look at the televisions or, or, or the clothes or whatever. <laughs> and so. When the events, when the uprisings of 1989 uh, throughout Eastern Europe began, uh, these events that would come to Albania in, in 1990, is that how you first, you and your family first began, became aware of what was happening throughout the Eastern Bloc? 
Yes, I think they had been following through these Italian news sources or through uh, Yugoslav news. They were aware of what, of what was going on in, in other countries in Eastern Europe. But I don't think they thought that it entailed anything for Albania because they knew that Albania was extremely isolated. And so they were aware somehow of Solidarność. I remember I once had overheard Solidarność in Albanian television and asked my father. And I also remember very clearly this is always nothing, you know, it's not. And I remember I was um, interested and intrigued by Solidarność because it was workers. And so and because we were so committed to the workers cause, I thought, you know, I would ask him we had to prepare a newsletter for political education in school often on, on Tuesdays. And so I thought, well, I'll write about Solidarność. And I remember very clearly that my dad said, no, 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 Solidarność is not that interesting. Do something about this cooperative that exceeded its target in in the remote mountain village in Albania. So there was a sense in which events in Eastern Europe were known uh, in Albania, but they weren't known as events that would ever affect the fate of Albanian socialism because we had been cut off from the rest of socialist countries. When yeah. And when, the, when the revolution, tell us about the revolution then, when it came. The, so, hool, the hooligan, they were hooligans initially, I think, weren't they? Exactly. They were mentioned as hooligans because uh, this was the way in which, even though there began to be these protests, which initially weren't protests about changing politically, they were protests about economic conditions, which often came from um, either students or intellectuals that were quite close to the party. Um, they were beginning to say, well, you know, this is not working, the queues are getting too long, the conditions, for example, in student dormitories are not satisfactory, there's no electricity, there is uh, heating shortages, and so on. So this beginning, there, there were these small protests which began as protests about we need to change somehow the course economically. And then very quickly, within the range of few months, this was all in 1990, so everything had already happened in Eastern Europe. The Berlin Wall had fallen in 1989, and nothing had happened in Albania when the Berlin Wall fell, and it hadn't even been reported in the news, or if it was, it was very much like something that affected the rest of um, Europe, the, the rest of Eastern Europe. And so there were these student protests in 1990, which in December turned into a request for political change. And within the, and then there was a strike at the university, and then very, within a very uh, short time, only a few weeks, the whole thing crumbled, and the secretary of the party came out on television and said, from now on, political pluralism is no longer a punishable offence and there will be free elections. And, and, just, and, and, just, and I think just pr- prior to that, the events in Yugos- the events in Romania had penetrated uh, popular consciousness in a different kind of way, hadn't yes, they? This yes, uh, this was the one thing that happened outside Albania, which had somehow been associated to the fate of Albanians, because there was a sense in which Albanians knew that Romania was also quite isolated and Ceausescu in their minds was quite similar to Enver Hoxha and his wife was also quite similar to Enver Hoxha's wife in the sense of the role she played. Um, and so, yes, this was the one time where the killing of Ceausescu had been, people had seen it on Italian television and were clearly talking about it a lot and uh, and discussing it as something that was really shocking, but also potentially with some implications because it, in some ways it gave an example to the Albanians that, you know, there's this very brutal, very oppressive regime and you can get rid of it. And so this was a wake-up call in some ways for many of the dissidents in Albania, which were never, I should emphasize, which weren't really dissidents that came from the same social class that I came in. So my father's side, my mother's side, they had been dissidents since the 1950s, you know, their families had been dissidents. By 1990, they had completely given up on any sense of change. So all these changes were brought by people who were close to the party and who were part of the elite themselves. They weren't, you know, old dissidents because my family had been spent 50 years suffering the consequences of this regime. They had completely lost hope that anything would change. And so they, I remember when they became 
my mother became mobilized without telling anyone. She became a member of the first opposition party very quickly. And she kept it secret for quite a few months because she was worried that my father and my grandmother would be very upset because of the fear that, of the implications, basically. Gosh. <clears throat> and so in 1990, um, how old are you then? So the, 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 revolu- the, the prime minister has come on television and announced that, that pl- politics from now on is going to be pluralistic. How old were you? I was 11 then. Gosh. And so uh, over, almost overnight, you're propelled out of one reality, um, an over-policed society and with faith in the future, out of one reality and into, an, into, an, into another. Tell us a little about that and how it felt. It was very confusing at the time. And it also, people afterwards interpreted it as something that was very clear, as you know, as though the intentions had been very clear, as though people already knew what was going uh, to happen. But at the time, I remember great confusion and also very, very big fear that none of these changes would be permanent. And so there was a sense in which things are happening, but because there are concessions made by the party that are often also made in the name of protecting peace, and there was a discourse around, you know, there mustn't be bloodshed. It is a kind of revolution, but it's a peaceful revolution. And so we must make sure that no people are killed and and so on. Everyone was worried that because of the degree of control that the party retained in managing this transition, that all of this would be temporary. And so it took a while for people to actually adjust, even though there was a first opposition party was founded and there was a first uh, free newspaper. And, you know, there was a sense in which now dissent was clearly tolerated and you could voice any opinion and there would be free elections. Very soon free elections were announced. Uh, people were so worried that none of these changes would last that, in fact, when the free elections happened, the party still won the election. So this is the degree to which people were unprepared and also concerned about the implications that even when they could vote freely, they ended up voting for the same party that they had been voting for the whole last 50 years, basically. And so it was, for me personally, it was confusing, I think, at a collective level. For me personally, it was completely bewildering and, and I'd say now traumatic because it was discovering that you were someone and then suddenly you were someone completely different. And yes, just- and you, you capture that brilliantly. The society that you thought you lived in and the family that you thought you had were no more and they were replaced by almost entirely new narratives. Was that that's- Exactly, and so suddenly I had I had lived with this impression that the, my parents served the party and they shared my enthusiasm for revolution and they wanted to bring out communism and did everything they could to bring communism to Albania because we were the idea was that we were in socialism, which was a transition to something bigger and better, which is communism. And And then suddenly I discovered not only that they had not ever been committed to communism, but they, in fact, were the class enemies that we discussed in school as, you know, these are the people that we must fight. These are the reactionaries that will always erect obstacles to Albanian communism. And so for me, this was really traumatic because it wasn't just that, you know, I discovered that these people were different, but I also discovered that they were the enemies. And I couldn't really bring myself at that point to see why, what was wrong with socialism in a way. And so even though there was all this narrative that everybody had been persecuted and it was that there was this degree of oppression and censorship. From a child's perspective, it's very difficult because when you're a child, you don't realize what freedom of opinion means, actually. You know, you only know about your own personal physical freedom. You know about being free to be in the playground or being free to see your friends or having, you know, going to school or feeling loved or whatever. So I think the metric of freedom for a child is very different. And so that's why I couldn't really, people would tell me. And then when it comes to convictions, the convictions are those with which you grow up, with kind of ideology with which you grow up. And so when people tell you, actually, this whole system is flawed, it's very hard to think, well, why? I mean, why would you be convinced that it is flawed? Nobody's really given you evidence in a way. They're just telling you things. But it takes a while to to understand that 
what they're telling you is right and true. And so this was the, um, at the time, I remember it being very confusing and, and, and very worrying, and I was very concerned by it. And do you, do you, how much of that do you think was because of your age? That is to say, had you been 20 in 1990 rather than 10, presumably you'd have probably arrived into a, at a different place by this point. You'd have viewed these events dramatically differently. Absolutely. I think it was 100% due to my age. In fact, when I, I often think about this now because I, uh, I teach and I research Marx and I research the socialist tradition and I'm interested in still knowing about the ideas and exploring them. And when I talk to people of that generation in Albania, so people who are 20, they have this visceral hostility to socialism and to Marxism which I'm convinced I would have had as well and I would have shared if just if I had been a different age. And so it was only because I was on the cusp of making this transition to adulthood and never noticing this degree of censorship and dissent and so on that I somehow kept an open mind when it came to exploring the ideas. And, and yeah, I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's where I am. And this, I think, really singles out this generation of people from the, the other generation, the one that were five, even five, five, six years older. Yeah. It's fascinating. We're almost out of time, but I can't let this conversation conclude without asking you about your grandmother, um, who is an extraordinary figure, maybe even the dominant figure in the, in the story. Um, you spoke, tell us about her and tell us also about why why you spoke French with her. Uh, so my grandmother came from this aristocratic family who had never lived in Albania. They were scattered around the Ottoman Empire and they were sort of ruling it in various you know regions of it. So her great her grandfather was the what was called the Belair Bay of Rumelia, which was a big, big region covering almost all the Balkans. And he was like a, a governor of that whole region. So she had been in this Ottoman aristocratic family at the time in which the Ottoman Empire was modernizing. And so French was very much the language of the Ottoman Empire, of the elite families in the Ottoman Empire. And so her entire family spoke French. And for her, her main identity was the identity of the aristocracy associated to the Ottoman Empire. And so... She spoke French to me because it was a way of keeping her identity. Even after uh, she came to Albania and she had this very traumatic life, she came to Albania and within very few years, first she came to work for the government, but then she met my grandfather. And then when uh, the communists won the elections and the system changed, her husband went to prison and she was a single mother who was condemned to forced labor and deportation for the rest of her life, basically. So her life, she always said to me, ended when I was 25, because until 25, she'd had this life of... uh, extreme privilege in the Ottoman Empire aristocracy and then after that in the kind of ruling elites of Albania pre-communism and then when communism came there was this abrupt change in her life and she's I guess she's a central character in my book because what made her really unique and stand out I think from all the other characters is that while everyone else thought and spoke about oppression and how much oppression there was in Albania she always insisted with me that she was free and this was completely perplexing because she was in a way the most oppressed of all. You know, she she was the one who'd seen this. My parents were, she, they grew up in communism. They were born in a communist country and they had grown up in a kind of communist country. I grew up in a communist country. She was the only one who had actually lived the transition and also knew what it was like before to be in this sort of privileged position. And she always insisted that while all the others were saying, oh, we're so oppressed and there's so much censors, she always insisted with me that she was always free. And the reason she said that and she often explained it in those terms, was that she felt that freedom, the, re- the real freedom, the, real f- the freedom that you should care about, is a kind of freedom as moral agency, whereby you are free to make moral decisions every time, even regardless of how big the constraints around you are. And so there's this sense that you always try to navigate circumstances and find your inner dignity and assert that inner dignity by making moral decisions and not, you know, 
selling out or not being not making compromises to the extent that you lose who you are and so on. And so she always had this insistence that she had lost everything and she'd lost money and she'd lost power and she'd lost wealth and she had lost privileges, obviously. And that regardless of the fact that she had lost everything, the one thing that she had not lost was her dignity and that her dignity enabled her to in some ways remain free, even though there were these purely oppressive circumstances. And so I found that at the time really powerful in the way in which she explained it to me, but it's also in my life helped me always cope with very difficult circumstances afterwards as well to just try and think about the fact that however much the world changes around you, you have this kind of inner power and this inner capacity to be moral, which is what should guide you in making decisions in the future and in thinking about how you relate to other people. And also, I think, ultimately, what kind of society you want to live in. <laughs> that's a fantastic way to wrap up this conversation, uh, Leia. Thank you so much. Um, that's all we have time for on this episode. Thank you, uh, Leia Upi, again for joining us. Uh, and thank you once again, as always, to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their generous support for this podcast. Uh, do please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at BG Prize, where you'll get all the latest on future episodes and news regarding the prize. You can also sign up for our newsletter through the website and get updates about the prize straight into your inbox. Uh, the Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in nonfiction writing and brings you the best in intelligent reflection on the world. As I said at the top of the programme, the winner of the prize this year will be announced on the 16th of November. Join us next time for another conversation with one of our shortlisted authors. Thanks again for listening and see you again. Bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.